0: important details and then on the other side of the coin like the other side of the frustration is that one of the whole reasons we picked the gospel of luke uh outside of you know matthew or mark is that 28 different times there are stories that are unique only to the book of luke right so to put it in kind of biblical terms sometimes i feel like luke strains out a gnat to swallow a camel right he's really glosses over some really important details that the other um, accounts have said like, no, we need to know some more details. And then he just throws in these other stories too that Matthew and Mark and even John like didn't find important. And so at first glance, when you look at the road to Emmaus, that kind of frustration rears its head because it makes me wonder why is this even here, right? Like why was this story important? Because you think about Christianity and you think about that. Our story is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? That's that's kind of the point of Christianity. And at the point where we are in the story, all of those things have already happened. Okay, we've already gotten the death of. We've already read the crucifixion. It's Easter afternoon, right? It's that Sunday afternoon after it. So we've already seen that he's risen again. Granted, I'll give you in like, you know, five verses, we're gonna see the ascension where he actually goes into heaven, but it seems like all the important things have already been talked about. And so it's like before we can even understand what is being said in this, oh, that fell. Um, We have to get inside Luke's head a little bit and ask ourselves first, like, why is this even here? Right? And so that's what I want to do before um, we even really get into it. And do we have to kind of go back some and just look big picture at what is it that Luke is trying to do? And so if you, if you want to, uh, if you could turn back with me to just the first chapter of Luke. Okay, we're going to have some flashbacks here. Uh, go all the way back, just Luke chapter 1. Because in the beginning, in that introduction, Luke actually kind of lays out the reason why he does any of this. When I stop hearing pages turn, I'll know you're all there. All right, chapter one. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first, who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Okay, so the entire reason, the first thing we have to realize is that the whole reason that Luke is doing this is that he wants to have a full account of Jesus. That would explain the 28 different stories that nobody else caught, right? Is that he spent a lot more time. He wanted a full account of the works and the teachings of Jesus. But then also that he is writing to this person, Theophilus, so that they may know the certainty of the things that have been taught, okay? Okay that they know with certainty. And you can look at that word, Theophilus, and you can see it as maybe just a person's name, like some dude named Theophilus. Uh, you could also look at that if you break those words apart. Uh, theo is where we get the word theology from. It, it's a Greek word that means God. If you look at Philus, it's a word that means the lover of, right? So where we get words like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, uh, philanthropist is like a, a lover. So you could also take those words and you could make it the lovers of God, right? It's kind of a general term for the church, right? Is that he's writing this to all the people who love God, that they may be certain of what they have been taught. So that's the first thing that we need to kind of see. The next thing uh, that I want us to look at that is understand that this is not the only book that Luke wrote. Uh, and we have to know that going into it, I think, to really understand these verses. Anybody here know the other book that Luke wrote? Acts. Throwing me off. Uh, the book of Acts, right? Um, Fun little fact here, Uh, I know a lot of people, if you were to ask them, who wrote most of the New Testament, who would you say? Paul, right? You hear Paul. And while it's true that Paul definitely wrote the most books, he's got the biggest number of books in the New Testament, when it actually goes to word count and just percentage of the New Testament, it's actually Luke by a pretty good margin. Something like 400 words more that he's written than even Paul. So uh, congratulations, you know, you're amongst people who have written most of the New Testament at this point. Um, But this was not the only book. The Gospel of Luke was not the only book that Luke wrote. He also wrote the book of Acts. And it's another account of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the formation of the early church, and then just how the gospel spreads, right? It's literally the Acts of God and the Acts of the Apostles. Um, And that these stories were meant to kind of be read Back to back. You're meant to read Luke and then go into Acts. It's kind of like the the sequel. Okay, um, so Luke is Infinity War, Acts is Endgame. All right, think of it, think of it like that. Um, And so when we see that, now that we have those two things in mind, number one, that Luke was trying to give a full account so that Theophilus may be certain of the things that they have taught, but then also that this is meant to immediately be followed by the book of Acts, literally um, the story of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the formation of the early church, and the spread of the gospel. Now, let's go back to Luke 24, and let's look at this story, okay? And so what we have here in this story is we've got these two guys, One of them, um, we know his name, it's Cleopas, it's mentioned, the best that we can tell, this is the first time Cleopas has been mentioned. It's also the last time that Cleopas will be mentioned. Okay, this is kind of the only little snapshot we get of him. Uh, The other guy doesn't even say his name, we don't know. Poor guy, let's call him Frank, okay. So, Cleopas and Frank, have heard these stories, they have some sort of measure of faith, uh, but we know that they are not kind of in that core group of the disciples, because it says later on they went to go tell the 11, right? So the disciples and kind of the the closest people to Jesus are over here, and they're over here. They're not with them, right? Uh, We also, when you read it, because there's not like any antecedent you know what I mean? Like it just kind of skips over the, the, the women. They see these angels saying, you know, why do you search for the living among, um, among the dead? Uh, and then it jumps to two of them. So you might even at first when you read that think like, oh, this must be two of the women. Um, but it also says that some of our women saw, right? Uh, and it was just as they had said. So he's also not with that group as well. So we've got just these, honestly, these two nobodies, right? Clephus and Frank walking down the road, talking about all the stuff that's happened. It does say we had hoped that they would redeem Israel so we know that they were believers in in some form or fashion. They have some measure of faith, but then they are approached by Jesus, by the resurrected Jesus, and their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But then through being with Jesus, eventually their eyes are opened, they see him, and then they announce the resurrection later on. Okay? And so that is the story that we have here. So, Understanding, again, those two things and giving a full account, and then also this is meant to go into Acts. Um, what we see here is this is a story of two men responding to the gospel. That This is kind of the first account of two people in a post-resurrection world responding to Jesus. And with Jesus, they see that eventually their eyes are open and they go to tell the story of the resurrection to the 11. This then becomes the first conversion story. This is the first instance we have Cleopas and Frank, right, of people who did not know Jesus as God. They interact and respond to the risen Christ. And now they do understand and they go to proclaim that. And so when we see that, when we understand, this becomes a perfect bridge between what Luke has already said and what Luke is about to say in the book of Acts. That we see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These two men responding to that in this post-resurrection world. And then that leads into the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the formation of the early church, and then the spread of the gospel. We have the acts of Jesus, the response of man, and then the consequences of obedience with the book of Acts and all that happens. And hey, guess what? Now we're all here in this room, okay? And so this is actually, this becomes a really important story of showing us then how we respond. And so to skip over that is to lose a really powerful demonstration and illustration of what it means to be a Christian. So going into uh, verse 16, Okay. Um, we see right there that it says, if I can get to chapter 16. Okay, so they're walking down the road, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So as we're diving into this and trying to understand what would this have meant to them, what is Luke trying to tell us with this story, we see that these guys are with Jesus, and they don't recognize him. And maybe maybe it's just me, but in the past when i've read this story before and i've seen that those words and they did not recognize him right they were kept from recognizing him the illustration that comes to my mind is one of like miraculous concealment you know, that, that Jesus somehow kind of magically changed his appearance to not look like Jesus anymore. He puts on the God equivalent of the Groucho Marx mask, you know, with the mustache and stuff, and like, well, look at me, I'm not Jesus. Uh, and, and somehow that's what it means when it says they were kept from recognizing him. But going back to what we had talked about previously, these are two nobodies, right? We have no idea who these guys are. They've never been mentioned before. They're never mentioned again. We have no idea how long they've been following Jesus Uh, We have no idea, even if they had been following Jesus, maybe they're from Jerusalem and just kind of just heard this stuff. Uh, We don't know if they had been present at any of the teachings that Jesus had said beforehand. And if you guys had been with us, Previously in Luke, as Jesus is doing a lot of these teachings, we know that it wasn't like an an intimate setting. It wasn't like he was sitting down around a campfire with his 12 disciples and maybe a few guys who had heard about it. He was teaching to like amphitheaters, right? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It doesn't say that Jesus fed the like couple dozen. It says that Jesus fed the 5,000. And so it's also, honestly, it's just as easy for me to believe going back and reading this that maybe it wasn't so much that Jesus concealed himself, as much as they just didn't recognize him, that they hadn't spent enough time with him to really understand what he looked like. And when it says that they were kept from recognizing him, it was the revelation of the fact that Jesus was walking with them. Does that make sense? I'll give you guys a little bit of a demonstration then uh, about what I'm talking about. Kind of maybe that will help a little bit. Um, The other day, my wife was on Facebook, and she was laughing, and I was asking her, like, what are you looking at? And she showed me this collection of memes that were about Tony Hawk. All right, so by a show of hands, who in here has heard that name? Who in here knows the name Tony Hawk? Of course you do. Right? Okay. Put your hand down. He's a a professional skater. Okay. Now, by contrast, this will show the real millennials in the room. How many of you guys in here still know every single song to the original Tony Hawk Pro Skater on Nintendo 64? All right. I know Matt's hand is up. (laughs) Somehow I would know that. All right. Uh, Thank you. You guys can put your hands down. If you haven't heard that, it's the jam, punk rock at its finest. Okay. and so in these memes, Tony Hawk, is pro skater, uh, it's like snapshots of his Facebook or Twitter profile where he's complaining about times where Tony Hawk has been confused for Tony Hawk. Right, like he'd be walking in the grocery store and someone would walk up to him and would be like, has anyone ever told you that you look like Tony Hawk? And he'd say like, yeah, everyone I know, including my wife and kids, right? <laughs> Uh, or he'd be giving his ID for some reason and they would look at it and they'd say like, huh, Tony Hawk, you got the same name as that skater guy. And he just has to kind of stand there and like, you're right. Um, I remember one of, one of them, the one that I thought was the funniest was that he was on a plane and a guy went to go put like his backpack or his luggage in an overhead bin and he saw a skateboard there and he said out loud, skateboard, what, is like Tony Hawk on this plane or something? And then proceeds to sit next to Tony Hawk on the plane. <laughs> So in all of those instances, these people knew who Tony Hawk was, right? He's kind of a household name. He made skating cool for like 10 years, right? He like invented the X games or something. Um, They knew who he was. They they knew that name, but because they weren't like some of us who spent all of middle and high school in checkered vans and Volcom shirts, watching Viva La Bam and just wishing that we were Tony Hawk, they weren't a part of that lifestyle. And so they were completely oblivious to the reality of who was sitting next to them on the plane. Does that make sense? They knew of him, but they did not know him. And so they were kept from recognizing him. The first question that I believe that this text is asking us is how many of us wouldn't recognize Jesus if he was sitting next to us on a plane? How many of us here are in danger of knowing of him, but we do not know him? Moving on. we see then in verses 19, um, going, moving down, that Jesus is asking what things, right? What things, he asked? Which is another reason, just kind of postscript here, of why it makes more sense to me that maybe they were just kept from recognizing, because it's almost like Jesus is egging them on, right? It's almost like Jesus saying like, oh, things have been going on, what things perhaps, right? Maybe a guy that looked like this about yay tall, does this ring any bells? Um, and they still don't, don't seem to recognize him. And they were able to give an account of it. What we see afterwards, he says, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. They knew how to talk about it, okay? So they have some measure of, of, the, right, uh, of the right answers. They knew what to say. But then as we, as we move down just a little bit, And Jesus says, how foolish you are how slow to heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And this part, guys, uh, if you're an underliner, this is something that I would underline. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jeez Louise, can we stop for a second and just imagine that moment? To think for a second, the risen Christ, God in the flesh, has overcome death, hell, and the grave, and finds these two nobodies. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All previous to this, we've spent 23 some odd chapters where Jesus has been speaking in riddles and parables and the disciples who are with him the entire way are just standing mouth open and agape and saying, what in the world did you just say, right? This whole time, Jesus has been cryptic in speaking. It seems like he never just comes out and says it. And then here we have it in his glory, resurrected on high. And he explains everything from Moses, the entirety of scripture and how it all points back to him whoa, right? Who in us in this room could even begin to think for a second that we could give a gospel presentation that comes anywhere close to this? Oh my gosh, how beautiful was that moment? How powerful would that moment have been? And yet, even after that, they do not recognize him you would think that after something as powerful as that the next sentence would have been, and then their eyes were open and they fell before him and worshiped and said, we're not worthy, right? But they don't. There's like, oh, that's one interpretation, I guess. They have no idea. So what I want us to get from this text, what I feel that this is saying is that knowledge of the gospel does not equal intimacy with God. That's important. I'm gonna say it again. Knowledge of the gospel does not equal intimacy with God. We've just seen, heard it right here, Luke says it, the most full and complete presentation of the gospel given by Jesus himself has just been preached to these two people, and it did not lead them to heaven. It did not lead them anywhere closer to understanding who was behind them, who was walking amongst them. They knew of him, they still did not know him, okay? They're sitting next to him on a plane and have no idea. How many of us here think that we have all the right answers? Think that by memorizing all of mere Christianity and reading every book by Charles Spurgeon, somehow that equates to you knowing God. It doesn't. If you have your Bible and you're turning, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and you're looking at verses 21 through 23, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, okay? This is Jesus speaking. If you've got a red letter Bible, this will all be in red letters. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In those days, I will look at them and I will say, I never knew you. If that is not humbling to us, then I don't know what else is. I I think that we've completely missed the point to think to ourselves that you could have been raised doing this your entire life, that you can be here every single Sunday morning like a good little boy and girl wearing your Sunday best and you went every Wednesday to the Awana or whatever it was, okay, and then you uh, volunteered every summer, you worked as a camp counselor for some Christian camp doing whatever, okay, did everything that you were supposed to do bought your little Bible and it had like gold leaf engraved letters with your name underneath it and you kept high on your shelf and then still on the day of judgment, the day that you die, you can come in the face of God and he will say to us, get back for I never knew you. That should be humbling for us to recognize that doing all the right things and having all the right answers can somehow not lead to intimacy with God. I want to give you guys a statistic, okay? Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but it blew my mind when I heard it. Do you guys know what country receives more missionaries than any other country in the world? Now when I say receives, I don't mean sends out, I mean actually gets missionaries, that missionaries come to preach more than any other country in the entire world. It's not Uganda, right? It's not Mozambique, it's not Nicaragua, Guatemala, it's not any of the countries that would originally come to your mind. It's the United States of America. We receive more missionaries than any other country in the entire world. The buckle of the Bible Belt. We invented the term Bible Belt, right? Perhaps the most preached to nation in the world with the most access to the gospel. And people are coming to us to preach the word because we, amongst all nations, okay, a a nation founded on Christian principles, we have more people who know of Jesus than actually know him. How many of us in here are in danger right now of knowing all the answers, but in lacking intimacy? How many of us here are walking next to Jesus, but we are kept from recognizing him? And so with that, I know that that's kind of been a bummer, all right, because the next question that leads to you is, well, then what then does? What then actually does lead us closer to God? What was it that opened their eyes and allowed them to see the reality of who was sitting next to them? So, go, to, uh, go back to, to Luke. All right, if you haven't already flipped there, we're gonna be looking at verses 28 and 29. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. And so we went in to stay with them. What we see first that the disciples did is that they let down their walls. They let their guard down, okay? As Jesus is pretending to go farther, he's kind of making up excuses, like, oh man, you know, it's a real long way to heaven or whatever, guess I'll just start walking now. And they stop him and they say, no, come inside with us, okay? Come and be with us. And if you guys don't know, at at this point, point in history, okay, in this culture, inviting someone in for a meal was a pretty big deal. It was a pretty, it was an intimate moment. Similar to how it is now. I mean, still, if you want to get to know someone, I'm going to say, hey, you want, let's come over and have dinner with us. That's kind of like the staple, like, I want to know you. You want to know me. Hey, let's be friends. Um, but in this culture, there were a few more steps. You didn't just let Joe Schmo into your house. Okay, this was something a little bit deeper. So the first thing that we see that led to their eyes being open to seeing Jesus, to having that intimate moment with God, is that they let down their walls. They invited a stranger into them. And later on we see that them actually saying like did our not hearts Burn within us, right? So they knew that something was going on. They, they see in this moment, God, I don't know what's happening here, but I feel it in my heart. You are doing something in this, and I'm just, you know what? I'm going to let it happen. And they say, You, stranger, who I don't recognize, who I don't know, I see that God is doing something, and so I'm going to, why don't you come deeper into my life? Why don't, I'm going to allow you to do this thing that's a little uncomfortable, this thing that I, I wouldn't just let anyone do, but I'm going to drop my walls, drop my boundaries. I'm going to allow you in. I think this is kind of a a, a perfect, um, back in later on to to Revelation 3.20, uh, which you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, Um, but where it says Jesus um, is talking, and it's, oh, if I can get there. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me, right? Jesus in this story is literally standing at the door and knocking, and these people, again, are dropping their walls, dropping their expectations, saying, God, you're doing something, I don't know what it is, and I am allowing you to come in. In America, just kind of in the West in general, we have this amazing ability to compartmentalize our experiences, okay? What I mean by that is that if you are here today and you claim Christianity, right? You would say to me and to others, I am in fact a Christian. Odds are there is some time in your life that you can go back to and say, yes, that was God that was working in my life. If you can't, that's probably the first thing I would say is ask yourself why, On really? You can't think of a single time when God has worked in your life. But I would imagine that a good portion of us have some experience that we can think of. that's like, yes, absolutely, that was God in my life. And maybe for a lot of us, I imagine it probably happened at some sort of worship service, right? Or we heard someone come and speak, or I know I was just dissing on Christian camps like two minutes ago, but I know that those experiences happen there. I don't wanna discount them completely. Some happened on a weekend, something like that, where you just know like, whoa, this was God and we as Americans have this amazing ability, right, to, if something happened on Friday, to spend the whole weekend just kind of processing it and saying like, Jesus, I know you're doing something cool and I wanna be a part of this and everything's gonna change now. And then we go back to school, or we go back to work, we sit at our desk, kind of take a breath and we're like, all right, this is familiar, right? This isn't different, this is the same, I know this. That's not, that's not any different, that's not any different, right? My home's not different. Okay, so maybe I can take this experience that I know is God and I can just kinda, you know, smush it a little bit into something I can contain and I'll just put it over here, right? And that way I can continue to live my life the way that I have been this way. This is all something that I know. This is all something that I understand. This is all something that I get. I've still got that experience. If someone wants to talk to me about it, I'll pull it off the shelf and I'll say, look, this was God, isn't that cool? And then I'll put it back over here and I'll start doing my thing, right? We have this amazing ability to normalize the things that are around us. Whether it be from fear or some just discomfort with the unknown. One of the things that I would ask us today then is what is it about those fears? If, if this is you today, if you can tell yourself, if you can think back to, yes, I had this crazy experience, but I know that I'm also lacking in intimacy, so I must be, there's some sort of disconnect here where I know this happened, but I don't feel it anymore. What is it about these fears What is it about this discomfort of the unknown that we are finding more important than what we experience with God, right? What is it that we are actually afraid of? What is it that we actually don't understand that we actually think might happen, right, that is just so horrible? What is it about those things, about those walls that is more important to us right now than the experience and the intimacy that we know that we could have with God? The next thing that we see that they did, right? So the first thing is they let down their walls. Woo, I'm getting into it, guys. (laughs) That's the Holy Spirit, all right? Praise the Lord. Um, The first thing they did is they let down their walls, emphatically. The next thing that we see they did is they allowed themselves to have a moment of worship. They allowed themselves to take part in something that God was doing. If you look in verse 30, It says, when he was at the table with him, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to him. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. If you see those words, okay, just the beginning of verse 30, when he was at the table with him, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. That might sound a little familiar to you. And that's because it is virtually the exact same wording just a few chapters ago uh, at the last supper. And then he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to them. So they are quite literally, in this moment, they are having communion. Both in the physical sense that they are communing with Jesus right now. He is in their house. He is sharing a meal with them. But then they are actually partaking in the sacrament of communion at this point. Okay? They are receiving the Lord's communion from the risen God himself. Breaking the bread. Giving it to him. And when they receive that. When they receive the Lord's communion. When they receive what God is giving them. That is when their eyes are opened. They have this moment of worship, both, like I said, communion, both literal and figurative with Jesus, and it opened their eyes, accepting of God's provision. And now I realize a little bit what I'm saying here is that if you want to have intimacy with God, you got to be intimate with God. And it's like, okay, I don't really get it. Um, And and I get that, and I understand that, and part of that is because I, I don't know what that looks like for you. I have no idea, and so I'm not gonna begin to give you some sort of checklist of do this, do this, do this, and great, now you know God, okay? But what I would ask you today is, in addition to looking at what walls are we putting around God? What walls are we putting around our relationship with him? What is he actually calling us to? What is it that God is trying to give us That we are not accepting. When was the last time that we honestly said, Father, I want to know you more. I want to receive what it is that you have for me. Here I am. My walls are down. I am willing to accept it come hell or high water, right? When was the last time that we opened ourselves up to actually receive that from God? Accept his movement. Ask him to move and then actually accept and receive his movement. The last thing that we see is once their eyes were opened, verse 33, it says, "'They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. "'There they found the 11 and those with them "'assembled together and saying, "'It is true, the Lord has risen as it appeared to Simon.' "'And the two of them told what had happened on the way "'and how Jesus was recognized by them "'when he broke the bread.'" What we see is that their eyes were closed. They did not recognize him. They let down their walls, let him inside okay? And then they had this intimate moment with him, receiving his provision and all that he had for them. Their eyes were open, and immediately their response was to get up at once and go. When we have a revelation from God, when we have an intimacy with God, we cannot help but to get up at once and go. And so I would encourage us here today, if you were wanting an intimate relationship with God, if you feel at that point that maybe you've just been saying the right answers the whole time, but there's been some sort of disconnect, are we getting up and going? One of my favorite things to talk about, because I just I think it's super cool, is actually uh, in the next book that Luke wrote, in the book of Acts, about nine to ten different times there's this phrase that uh, says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Someone was filled with the Spirit, or it says the group, the disciples were filled with the Spirit, and nearly every single time that we see this phrase, filled with the Spirit, it is followed by another phrase, and they spoke boldly. Every time that God, the Holy Spirit of God, enters in and fills the people of God, they cannot help but to speak boldly. The first manifestation of God's glory is to speak it out, to proclaim it, to go. If we look again at Revelation 12, uh, twelve eleven, it says that they overcame Satan uh, by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. That literally the end times they are proclaiming that the way that we are defeating Satan, the way that we are defeating the ways of the world is yes, through the blood of the lamb, yes, through the sacrifice of God and the fact that we are testifying about it. Literally the most powerful thing that we as Christians can do, the way that we can manifest his glory is to speak about it. We do nothing at all for our own salvation, but it says that there is power. The Holy Spirit is working through us when we speak about it, when we tell others about his glory, when we exalt his name. And so in a minute here, we're actually gonna get a chance to take communion. Okay, in a moment, the band's gonna get up and play. And we're going to have this moment where we say that we respond to the gospel. And it is literally, in this moment, it is just perfect how it works. Sometimes it happens that way. We're going to see a chance for us to do exactly what happened on the road to Emmaus. That we are entering in God's people. And I would encourage you guys to use this moment to let down your walls. Ask yourself, okay, is there something that I am afraid of? Is there something that I'm putting up that I'm finding more important than my intimacy with God? and to accept the provision that we say that when we're taking communion, that God broke it, he gave the bread, and he said that this is my body that is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me, and he takes the juice. It was wine then, but whatever. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this, do it in remembrance of me. This is our time to respond to the gospel, and I would ask that we take it seriously that today that we would ask these questions, am I in danger of knowing of God without actually knowing him? Knowing of the risen Christ without actually knowing him? Is he sitting next to me on a plane and I don't recognize it? Is he speaking into my life and I just don't hear it? Is he moving around me and the people that are around me, is he attempting to move in my own life and I simply have put up walls so that I cannot receive it? So we're gonna pray and we'll have that time of taking communion. If you are not a believer in this room, I'll say too, thank you so much for being here. This is really cool. Uh, and I realize that there are kind of stages to this, right? That very few people go from like, I'm an atheist, rah, to like, yay Jesus, right? It's it's a big jump. A through Z, there's 26 letters, okay? So I, I get you don't jump all of them at the same time. And maybe you're not there yet. And I, I completely respect that, I understand. I would ask then specifically for you to just take a moment and to reflect on this while we're all taking communion to ask yourself why. To ask yourself, who is this guy, right? What is it that everyone else seems to see but that I don't? If you have that question, if you would like to ask one of us, we are gonna have elders that are at the stations. We're gonna have people around that you can ask those questions to. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you about it. We'd love to discuss it. But this is a sacred moment. This is a sacred time for us to literally accept the provision of God. You bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you so much for revealing yourself to us that we do not serve a hidden God we don't serve a guy that keeps himself from us but that you stand at the door knocking i pray then god that our eyes would be open today you would lead us into your presence um, we, we pray your blessing over this communion and over this crowd father we know that you are in the midst of us we know that if we leave here and we have not received your presence, that it is not because you didn't show up, but rather because we didn't answer. And I pray, God, that that would not be the case for the people here today, that you would stir among us something, God, that allows us to see you, that you would fling open the doors, God, bust them down, that a wave of your mercy and grace would come over us, that we would feel your presence here tangibly, We know that we are nothing, we are nobodies, just like in the story. We thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. We love you, we can never repay you, and we thank you so much that that's not what you ask. Thank you, Father, it's in your name we pray, amen.